This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. This is Judson Pierce. I'm pleased to be joined by my father and original host of this program, Alan Pierce, from Salem, Massachusetts. On today's edition of Workers' Comp Matters, we are delighted to have attorney Chris Hoog as our guest. Chris is a graduate of Middlebury College, as well as Suffolk University Law School. Chris has been active in representing injured employees since 1985, with a strong emphasis on the marine and maritime claims and claims under the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Acts, as well as what we're here to talk about today, the Defense Base Act. Thank you so much for being with our audience today, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, Chris, this is Alan. Good to uh, talk with you again. I guess to really kick this off, tell us what the Defense Base Act is and how it came about and why. Thank you, Alan. The Defense Base Act was created in 1941 as a result, a direct result of the United States' involvement in World War II. It became uh, a political and practical necessity for the United States to establish a presence in various friendly countries allied countries around the world, more particularly for the purpose of building air bases and uh, army bases and such, and places from which we could conduct our our wartime activities. And in doing so, uh, not only did the United States send our soldiers abroad and all over the world to be in these places, but they also sent civilian contractors, private individuals like you and me, to go and assist with the construction, with the operation of, with the development of the infrastructure for these defense-based facilities all over, uh, especially in in Europe in 1941. And as a result, as in with any type of employment, you will have people that have industrial or work-related injuries. What the Defense Base Act was created for was to afford civilian contractors, American civilian contractors, who were engaged in defense-related employment outside of the United States, compensation if they became injured and disabled. And it is the, uh, it has all the typical, the Defense Base Act has all of the, it's a federal act, it has all of the bells and whistles and the basic elements of every Workers' Compensation Act around our country today. It affords a uh, it affords a weekly indemnity or a weekly disability check if you qualify for it. It affords you medical coverage for your injuries and for the uh, reasonable and necessary treatment. And it also affords vocational rehabilitation services. And those are the that is the essence of the Defense Base Act today. All right, Chris. Those of us who handle workers' comp in our individual states. Each state has its own workers' compensation board, industrial board, whatever they may call it, where any questions, disputes, or issues surrounding the payment of compensation or the denial of compensation can be adjudicated. So what is the mechanism that was set up by Congress 
to create or to utilize a system to handle those type of, of claims and also oversee the proper equitable delivery of these benefits? The Defense Base Act, when it came into being in 1941, literally adopted in its entirety another Workers' Compensation Act, which existed and had existed since the mid-1920s. And that Workers' Compensation Act is called the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, a federal workers' compensation act. It had already been written. It had, been, uh, it had produced appellate case law. And by the time uh, 1940, 1941 came around, when they, instead of writing a new set of laws and rules and regulations and procedures uh, for the creation of this new Defense Base Act, what Congress did was they literally adopted every single provision of the Longshoremen's Act. And that is 33 United States Code 901. And it is a federal act. The DBA is a federal act. And all of the claims and all of the litigation and all the resolutions are conducted on a federal level, not through any, nationally speaking, not through any local workers' compensation boards like here in Massachusetts. We have the Department of Industrial Accidents. You'll never see a, a case litigated under the Defense Base Act or under the Longshoremen's Act in that particular forum. So where do we go? For instance, we, we go in Boston. You have to start going through the United States Department of Labor, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, Division of Longshore and Harbor Workers. That's a lot of words, but it's a, it's a small group of people in each district. In Boston here, their home is in the, uh, in the JFK building. They are the recipient of an initial claim form under the DBA. If you uh, represent an injured person, there are certain requirements for filing. You have to have certain elements uh, uh, proven at the outset to initiate a claim, and you file it at the Department of Labor. And at the Department of Labor, the equivalent of an initial meeting or a conciliation occurs within about eight weeks, if you're lucky. It's a slow, it's, it's, it moves a little bit slower than uh, things do on our state side here in Massachusetts. As a result of that particular informal conference, and that's what they're called, a recommendation will issue, a written recommendation. And it is just that. It is no more than a recommendation. And good, bad, or ugly, when you receive a recommendation as an employee's counsel, you file an appeal. And the next step is you get into the Office of Administrative Law Judges, which you will, you will be in front of a real bona fide federal administrative law judge uh, in Massachusetts. That's going to be here in Boston at the Tip O'Neill building. And you will have a full evidentiary hearing where all the procedures and practices that all trial lawyers are familiar with are uh, generally observed. That administrative law judge will conduct a, a thorough bench trial and issue a very thorough decision and order on your claim. Uh, after consideration of all the evidence, you know, the good, bad, and, and the other evidence. Those are the basics of the mechanics of bringing a DBA claim. All right. When you mentioned Boston, does the Boston area only cover claims of employees located in Massachusetts, or does it cover the region? It covers the region. Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, 
Massachusetts, for sure. I can't think of any other uh, other states that it would cover here in Boston. Similarly, around the country, I suspect there are how many regions do you estimate there might be? A dozen. Now, our, your office is south of Boston. You're a uh, suburb of Boston, right? Or are you downtown? I'm downtown Boston. Okay. Can you handle a case out of uh, Oklahoma? I could, yes. And uh, I do have uh, defense, particularly defense based act cases from all over the country. They are not fussy about bar membership and things like that. Wherever you are around the country, they're very, they're very generous about it. So I see defense based act cases coming from all over the place. So a, a typical case would be the, the injured worker who I guess would be called the claimant or employee. Then you have the employer. Is there private insurance involved or is this government taxpayer money that pay these benefits? No, it is private insurance. And the employers uh, are not, you don't see very many self-insured employers. I have never seen a self-insured employer and I may be, I may be wrong, but I don't believe there are any. You'll see a lot of AIG on uh, Defense Base Act cases, a lot of STAR insurance on Defense Base Act cases, and some other insurers. There's 100% coverage on the cases through insurance. How, how long do these cases generally take to resolve, to go through the litigation process? Does it vary so much, or is there a general average of time? No, it's it it doesn't vary that much. At least here, it takes. Uh, I will say at the outset, representing uh, injured uh, Defense Base Act employees, it takes way too long. It's no one's fault. No one is dragging their feet at the Department of Labor. They're just challenged with the quantity of claims and the amount of work that's involved in processing them fairly. If I represent someone, or if you represent someone under the Defense Base Act uh, who has an injury and the insurer is contesting liability or disability or nature and extent of disability or any or all of the above typical defenses, and they are not voluntarily making payment, you can file a claim. From the day that you file a claim, you'll have a hearing order in a year. And during that time, your client will go without compensation unless your client has uh, other, uh, other forms of income. And it's a hard experience compared to the Massachusetts, for instance, our local Massachusetts Workers' Compensation Act, you can get from, from the date of a, uh, of a denial of benefits, you can get a shot in front of a judge within about four months right now at a conference. It's not that way under the DBA. If you're aggrieved, can you appeal further? You can appeal a hearing decision to the United States Court of Appeals here, whatever circuit you're in, which I've done. I did my first one back in 1987, I think, uh, in the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, from there, you can go to the United States Supreme Court if you can convince them to hear the case. And the Supreme Court has heard a few longshore cases and written some very interesting opinions over the years. Have they heard defense-based cases as well? Not that I'm aware of. Interesting. I would assume that, um, you know, uh, the United States since World War II has been in and out of declared conflicts, wars, or whatever. You know, we can look at Korea, we can look at Vietnam, and then we could look, I suppose, at various iterations of things going on in the Middle East. Can I assume that the, probably going back to the early 90s, where things really started to heat up combat-wise, there has been an uptick, a significant uptick in these type of cases? There was a huge uptick when we started off in Iraq. 
back during the first Bush uh, presidency, a huge uptick when we started to uh, establish or attempt to establish a presence in Iraq and then on to Afghanistan. In the early 2000s, after we planted ourselves in uh, so many of our troops over there, for instance, I think in, in the early 2000s, Iraq alone had 160,000 American troops in it and something to the tune of 180,000 DBA contractor employees. Are these people actually seeing combat and equipped the way soldiers are, like pl- a private militia? Yes, is the someplace in between, depending on your function. They all are exposed to the hazards of war. However, they're exposed to the hazards of war. So uh, by way of example, many of the clients I've represented have come down with mental and emotional and anxiety-related disabilities as a result of some of the things that they've seen and some of the fears that have been put in through them when they see uh, bombs going off uh, 100 feet away from them or they're driving with a convoy and they see, uh, they see something that normally we wouldn't see. So you'll see a lot of mental, emotional disability claims. You will not see DBA claims involving combat injuries typically where unless there was an attack and there was a, an explosion or something like that that was, that was ancillary to what they were doing, it's not very typical. What you will see is a lot of what, you, what we see here in our practice in Massachusetts. There are carpenters, electricians, plumbers, teachers, dentists, all sorts of people from all walks of life doing very normal things in a very abnormal place. And they're also paid extremely well for their service. Typically, a mechanic will go out there for uh, nine months out of the year and have three months off and be paid very generously for the year's work. One to $200,000 for nine months work. Unfortunately, you have to live uh, in a country that is very, very far away from home. And it has its challenges to these people. So if, if somebody, a high wage earner, let's say somebody making $4,000 a week as a contractor, suffers a totally disabling injury and gets his or her weekly compensation rate under the Defense Base Act based on the Longshore, is there a cap or maximum weekly rate? Yeah, there is. Just like we have in, in all of our states, there's a, currently the cap on Longshore, excuse me, on, on Defense Base Act benefits uh, and Longshore benefits for that matter is about $1,725 per week. And like, uh, like our state benefits, it's not taxable. That is the current ceiling. It's tracking closely with our Massachusetts maximum workers' compensation rates. It's not very far apart, and that's the most that you can get right now. It goes up every year, just like uh, its state counterpart does. And the amount of years you're entitled to get? There are a few different categories of of disability benefits. In other words, there are a few different categories of weekly, a few different styles of weekly benefits that you can try to uh, draw under the Defense Base Act. The first one is temporary total disability benefits. That pays you not 60%, but 66.66, repeating 66 and two thirds percent of your average weekly wage at the time of the injury. That's temporary total disability benefits. There are no time limits on that benefit, zero. The next available benefit is something called 
temporary partial disability benefits. And it is, it is uh, the figures for temporary partial disability benefits are determined using the same earning capacity analysis subtracted from average weekly wage times 0.6666, et cetera. That benefit is payable for a limit of five years. When somebody reaches maximum medical improvement, what happens? A lot of things, and it depends on what the body part is. But I want to run back quickly to make sure everybody understands that under the Defense Base Act, there is the Cadillac of benefits, which is permanent and total disability benefits. And that is a forever benefit once you get on it. That is uh, where a lot of my clients end up. It depends, obviously, on the nature of your injury, uh, the severity of your disability, and who you are as a person. There are benefits for uh, permanent loss of function to a long list of body parts, the typical ones, fingers, arms, legs, eyes, ears, sense of smell, things like that. And there is a laundry list of those. It's good and it's bad. If you have an injury to a, what it's called a schedule, if you have an injury to a listed scheduled body part, such as an arm or a leg or a foot or a hand, and you become you reach maximum medical improvement and everyone just pick a, 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 a percentage loss of function. A judicial officer would have to, if you can't agree on it, you have a judge make a decision as to what the loss of function number is. If you are on temporary total disability and you become permanent and partial, in other words, you reach maximum medical improvement for a scheduled body part, you are limited to recovering the amount of weeks afforded for that particular body part times, you know, uh, factoring in the percentage loss of function and the amount of weeks. I can give you an example. If you complete, if for an arm amputation, you're on workers' compensation, you're on temporary total disability benefits, an arm amputation will pay 312 weeks of workers' compensation, okay? They could arguably, arguably, pay you out 300 weeks of workers' compensation without a settlement, and then stop weekly temporary total disability benefits. Whether or not you're Um, disabled from working. Yep. Yeah. It's tough. There are, however, unlike our Massachusetts Workers' Compensation Act, if you have an injury to a non-scheduled body part, and here's a significant piece, a nugget for all of your listeners, the spine is a non-scheduled body part. Therefore, if you have somebody with a herniated disc or any type of spinal lesion that's work-related and that is disabled as a result, you can stay on permanent, you can stay on temporary total disability benefits. You can apply for permanent permanent, uh, total disability benefits, but most importantly, you can get permanent partial disability benefits forever. Okay, we don't have that under our State Workers' Compensation Act. All we have is something called Section 36, which pays you out X small packages of money. Huge strategic advantage under the Defense Base Act to anyone with a spine injury or other injury that is not specifically listed in that schedule. Let's take a moment and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. 
Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. And we're back with our guest today, Chris Hoog, an attorney who concentrates a lot of his practice in the Defense Base Act. We're learning a lot about what types of benefits are afforded injured workers under the system. And you were saying there is a great advantage for injured workers who might have a spinal injury, correct? That's correct, yes. Are there other types of uh, advantages from this act than uh, the typical state uh, comp act might afford an injured worker? Yes. Yeah, there's an important one. The DBA was, it, it adopted the Longshore Act. And the Longshore Act, by its own terms and by a large body of uh, appellate case law, has made a point of being extremely favorable to claimants and injured employees. On balance, it's a much better place to have your case than any state form that I'm aware of in this country. The benefits and the the process that you experience with the Department of Labor and with the federal judges is far more employee friendly than our state workers' compensation experiences. That doesn't mean you win every time. I've lost enough cases to know close calls, but you will get under the Longshore, under the Longshore Act and under the Defense Base Act, you, the injured employee, will get the benefit of the doubt on any toss-up on questions of fact. And that is established case law. Now, in our state workers' comp experience, attorneys are paid in a variety of ways, and in each jurisdiction may pay them differently, but most, if not all, state workers' comp jurisdictions do allow the parties to enter into what are known as, here are known as lump sum settlements, others may be called release and uh, lump sum releases, or there are other terms. Can you do something similar under the Longshore Act for defense-based cases? No, Alan, it's a good question, and it's important for anybody uh, thinking about these cases to understand. The answer is that you cannot take a percentage or charge a contingency fee on any claims under the Defense Base Act. Here's how it works. Uh, Whether you go to a decision, an order, or whether you, along the way, uh, or after a decision and order, you you achieve a lump sum, it is incumbent on claimant's counsel to present a fee petition going back to the first meeting with the client that will be subject to opposition from defense counsel. And they can sometimes be picky. In my experience, I've never had a a battle over that. And it's the type of thing you can usually get a stipulation over if you have a good relationship with counsel. So no contingency fees allowed. Billable time is allowed, and the carrier, not the employer, not the employee, the carrier has to pay any approved fee petition 
and they 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 can't complain once it's an approved fee petition. So would this be a function of hours times an hourly rate plus expenses? Yeah. Yes. And the hourly rate will shift for work in the first phases of the claim from the date of filing of your DBA claim to the time that you get through the United States Department of Labor, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, Division of Longshore and Harbor Workers. Once you get through that informal conference, up until that time in Boston, you can charge $350 an hour. Once you're through the Department of Labor and you're over into the Office of Administrative Law Judges, the rates go up to $400 plus, depending on who you are, what kind of case you have, and what kind of results you get. And I've not ever gotten any pushback on that from any judges or any defense attorneys, at least on the rate. Sometimes they will bicker over how long it took you to write a letter requesting medical records or, or something like that. But that's pretty much how it works. So conceivably, you could spend a lot of time getting a more limited benefit and be paid a legal fee by the insurance company more than what the injured worker might have gotten. Absolutely, yes. And they try to point that out in defense of the amount of your bill, saying, Your Honor, this bill was over, this whole case was over an unpaid MRI bill, and, and the, the, attorney's, the attorney's fee is $30,000, to which, you know, the, some, some good arguments could be made to push that back, saying, Well, you should. Well, one argument that. is, Why didn't you just why pay the bill? Why didn't you just pay the bill? Yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe next time they'll be a little bit more. Well, you know, the, the term contingent fee, the contingency is winning the case. So uh, let me ask you this question that some of our listeners might have, what if you lose the case? Can you, and it's not a contingent on winning the case, are you technically able to bill your client? No. Mm. So there, there is a sense of contingency to this, that you have to be successful to what there, degree? Uh, you have to recover more than a penny. It's like uh, trying to get the nose of the football across the, just to touch the, uh, the line of the end zone. Right. Um, and that opens the door. It's like pressing a button. Of course, one of the factors that a judge will look at is the result obtained. So if you have a Peric victory where you happen to be the last man standing and you ultimately didn't uh, do a, uh, uh, anything really seriously, meaningfully beneficial to your client, the judge will take a look at that. At the same time, the judges know that people like us uh, make a living pouring our hearts and souls into these cases, that we take risks, and uh, it doesn't always work out. They know that we're good lawyers, and they, uh, they tend, in my experience, to honor the attorney's fees. I think they know also uh, quite clearly that the, that the defense attorneys get paid their hourly rate whether they win or lose, and I think some of that mentality spills over to their treating, at least treating uh, me, me kindly over the years. You'll also get your expenses reimbursed and things like that. Like, like any other workers' comp case, I assume your employees, your clients are also probably under the Social Security Administration, and I take it there's probably a similar offset of Social Security disability benefits that takes place? Everything is the same. The 80% rule works. Uh, it, it applies here and in, you know, in Massachusetts, uh, under our state workers' compensation uh, settlement schemes, we, we, we make a special point of allocating uh, funds to various things in order to avoid an offset. It's the Scarata allocation. Yeah, the life and, expectancy. Yeah. And I've been using that under the, when you submit a, a settlement petition, which is a lengthy, lengthy document compared to our state in Massachusetts, the settlement petitions, uh, I will put in uh, language like that, prorating the amount of the settlement over the lifetime, because the judges are privy to that. They're aware of it and they expect to see that in the lump sum settlements too. 
In what ways does this act differ from, say, a, a federal, a FICA type of case? Well, or, or a federal employee under OWCP. Yeah, like a post office post worker. Office, Veterans Administration, a hospital worker. Well, we have uh, we all have a common friend that handles a lot of those cases. Uh, we, we were all together recently. And those cases are tough cases if you're the injured employee. I don't have a great deal of familiarity with them. They are nothing. Uh, you know, you heard me complain a little bit earlier about how much time it takes to get in front of a judge under, under the Defense Base Act. Well, the FICA claims, I think, are, are 10 times as, as challenging. Yeah. Plus, you don't have an insurance company on the other side. You really have the federal government administering their own benefits. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's much more cumbersome for the claimant attorney. It is. And the claimant attorney also has to get paid by the client up front, hourly. There's no other way to survive as an attorney taking FICA claims unless you uh, have clients who, as you, you can picture it, who are out uh, out of work, uh, not getting workers' compensation benefits because it's being contested and you have to pay a lawyer X amount of thousands of dollars to initiate your claim and, and then right. up, up, keep, them up, keep them going along the way. Sure. In terms of if someone out there is listening and, and wants to handle one of these cases and they're licensed to practice only in one state. It doesn't matter as long as you're admitted to the bar of the U.S. District Court, right, or the U.S. Appeals Court. You you're you're admitted to the bar to, to practice these. All I can say is I have been allowed to do these all over the country, mm-hmm. and I've never had pushback from anybody about it. And I would take and do take referrals from from out of state. So you don't have to like go through the Pro Hoc Vice process to get to get special clearance or. I have never had to do that. That's all I can tell you. By the way, in my now 47-year career as a lawyer, I handled only one Defense Base Act case. Wow. I don't know if you're aware of it. I think you know. It it made history. It's my Uh, one and only DBA case. I won't get into the details, but it was a death case. My client died from autoerotic asphyxia. I do remember hearing about that. Yeah, uh, it had some degree of notoriety. We won it before the ALJ. And then it was taken away by the Benefits Review Board very quickly and upheld by the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, so my widowed client never saw any money, but her husband accidentally uh. hanged himself in the course of uh, um, self okay. sexual yeah. se- stimulation yep. on a Defense Base Act. So that, that's, it. That's, that's it. That's the end of the episode right there. <laughs> what a way to finish it out, Chris, huh? I figured, you know what? I could never top the facts of that case. So why bother? <laughs> Someday we'll, we'll, someday we'll have a beer. And, we will. And, yeah. Chris, if somebody wants to contact you, how, how do they reach out to you, Chris? You can reach uh, me at my office. My name is attorney Chris Hood. My last name is spelled H-U-G. We are at 1 State Street, Suite 1050 in Boston, Massachusetts, right across from the old State House at the intersection of Congress Street and Washington Street and Court Street. Site of the Boston Massacre. Yeah. Right outside your building. I walk past it as I will this afternoon when I uh, when I walk to the train. And my telephone is at area code 617-227-0400. And I'm happy to help anyone or take questions and obviously uh, take any cases if anybody wanted me to. But most importantly, I'm happy to share information with people and do anything I can to help out. I'd like to thank Chris Hood for joining us uh, today. We will be back with you very soon with another new episode of Workers' Comp Matters. On behalf of my father, Alan Pierce, I'm Judd Pierce, and uh, make it a day that matters. 
Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.